And they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. And thank you for what I know you want us to hear. And Father, I pray that you'd lift up our hearts today, encourage us, pick us up. Lord, show us your son, Jesus. And help us to keep our eyes wide open. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning and guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were going to do another song. We're going to save that till after the message. I've just... It's amazing to me how hard Satan works on Sunday mornings to derail the Crawford family. Uh, this morning my kids made it. Hi guys, you look great. On their new fall school clothes, which is a totally different story. Yesterday. Anyway. Uh, they're here. Cheryl's not because we have a flood in our basement. And the phone rang right about in the middle of rehearsal and Barb brought it out and, you know, what's, what's up, yeah, flooding in the basement. And so she's there dealing with that and her dad's there and she's got help and, it, and it's, it's going to be okay. But it amazes me how these things happen. It was eight, nine years ago. I was a youth pastor in Anaheim, California, and I got a phone call on a Sunday morning. Hayden, who at that time was about one, one and a half years old, had stuck his finger in a shower drain and couldn't get it out and began working it and working it and slicing it, almost sliced his finger off. So Cheryl's calling me from the emergency room and I am just about to step up and teach our, our high school and junior high group and they're at the emergency room Sunday morning. I can't tell you how many countless Sunday mornings I've gotten the call. The phone rings now and I don't even answer it when I'm here on show. I turn my cell phone off because I don't want to know. He worked so hard to try and derail the joy that we share when we're together on a Sunday. And I know he works hard to derail your joy all through the week. We know this. We see it time and time again. And we can come face to face with scripture and encouragement. And then within hours, literally, of being lifted up and seeing the Father and going, This is great. He'll do something to bring us down. And man, I want to take some serious shots at pessimism this morning. Because it seems to me that of all people living on the face of the planet, I don't know how it's possible that Christians anywhere can be pessimistic. And yet we can. And yet there are some who have a propensity toward pessimism. You know what pessimism is. Defined, it's someone who feels bad about feeling good for fear that he'll feel worse when he feels better. Okay? A pessimist, someone who smells the roses and begins looking for the funeral. Someone who always sees the glass is half empty because they just know there's a leak somewhere. W.C. Fields, the quintessential pessimist of the 20th century, was quoted as saying, Smile first thing in the morning and get it over with. <laughs> Jacob. Jacob had a propensity for pessimism. Here's a guy who has gone through a pretty amazing life. He has spoken with God. He has seen visions of the Lord. He, above all people, I mean, we think sometimes if I could just see God, then maybe I could get through today. Maybe tomorrow will be better. If I could just see the Lord, Jacob did. But he was a pessimist. 
Here his sons come back to him and say, Hey, Joseph's alive. He's alive. We thought for 20 years. Well, you thought for 20 years he was dead. We knew he wasn't because we sold him into slavery. But he's alive. This is a good thing. And their father was stunned and he would not believe them. He couldn't. He was a pessimist. But if you think back for a moment, consider how he got there. I think Jacob had good reason to be a pessimist. He started out as a man of cunning, but the cunning soon gets undercut by his treacherous uncle Laban, who shows him what real cunning is. Then, of course, the demands of four wives, that had to take him down a few notches. (laughs) But then his cunning is bolstered a bit. He wrestles with God and wins. The Lord allows him to win. And he gets renamed to Israel. And things begin to look up until around Genesis 35 when things go south. And they go south badly for Jacob. He loses the love of his life, Rachel, to an untimely death. His oldest son, Reuben, then tries to make an early claim to family authority by sleeping with one of his other wives. That always makes a dad feel real good about his sons. His favorite son, Joseph, is murdered, or so he thinks. And Genesis 37, verse 33 tells us, A wild beast, Jacob saying, has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And then all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Wouldn't you? Your child has been murdered, or so you think. The clothing that you last saw them in is brought before you, bloodied and torn. Wouldn't you be a bit pessimistic? Well, then his grandsons, Ur and Onan, are so wicked that God takes them completely out of the game. Wicked or not, every parent knows that when a child goes bad, they're still their child. When wickedness happens in your family, it's still your family, and it still hurts. Jacob had to see now two of his grandsons die for their wickedness. And if that's not bad enough for one lifetime, now famine strikes the land. And Jacob and his sons have nothing to eat. They're sitting around starving to death, so he sends them off to Egypt, down there to get some food and bring it back. But when they come back, they're less one son. Simeon is now missing. Why is Simeon missing? Well, because there's a lord in the land who says we have to take Benjamin up or we can't get Simeon back. And now his family is being toyed with, a cat and mouse game. And Jacob just says, how bad can it get? How bad could it possibly get? My life is in the hole. And he sits there and he broods. And finally when the starvation gets so bad, he says, go, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Try and get my son back. And they go down to Egypt. Well, now they've returned. And they tell him, Joseph's alive. And he's a ruler in Egypt. And Jacob, not only does he not believe, I believe he can't believe at this point. His heart has gone literally numb. In fact, in verse 26 where it says that he was stunned, that word stunned literally means numb. He was numb. His heart had grown numb. How would you categorize your heart this morning? Is your basement flooded out? Is your son's finger about to fall off? (laughs) Is God doing negative things? No, God doesn't. Is Satan doing negative things in your life so that you can't even see the good that God is doing? Is your heart numb? Maybe life's not what you hoped it would be. Maybe your family is not what you planned. 
Maybe you are in a season of spiritual, emotional, or physical famine, and you may even feel as if there's really no hope for the future. You're just kind of living out day to day, trying to survive. But listen, today, I just want to give you some incredible encouragement to lift up, to, to build up some faith here. To send you out feeling better than when you came in. And I've got great news for you. Three words of encouragement that I want you to jot down this morning. If you happen to take notes, you can even just write them in the margin of your Bible if you want. But the first word is vision. Vision. God does not leave us without a vision. He gives us very specifically something to look at. And we see a picture of this in our story back in Genesis 45, verse 27, where Jacob gets a vision. Watch this. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Vision. The wagon trains are coming. It's coming around the bend. And you need to understand that in this day and age, the wagons were a very unique thing. The rich, the wealthy, the, those who were technologically advanced in Egypt had the wagons. Joseph at this time may have never even seen wagons before, or if so, those were what you know, royalty used. And here comes this massive wagon train, donkeys filled with goods. And Jacob sees this. And he revives. His heart quickens. Literally comes back to life. I said on Wednesday night, it's like you've been sitting down for a long time and you go to stand up and your leg is numb. We all know that feeling. You can't feel it. It's just weird, isn't it? It's like a just a just hanging there, this thing. And then it starts to quicken, to come back to life, to tingle. Jacob has got to be tingling. He sees the wagons coming. He is given a vision. He catches a glimpse. And it's all he needs. He is numb with despair until he sees the wagons coming. Psalm 27.13 says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. The wagon train is a coming. Now, Rick... Are you intimating that the wagons are a picture of Jesus coming for His church? Is this another one of those end-time messages? You better believe it is. Absolutely. And yes, we talk about this all the time because it's our vision. Because this is what God has given us to get us through. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. And when the tunnel gets dark, we need somewhere to look. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, You've heard the verse, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But in verse 18, Paul adds this sentence, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Build each other up with these words. You having a bad day? Guess what? Jesus is a coming. Jesus is on the way. The wagons are rolling. Now, I'm not going to get into this right now, but there are so many factors right now in the world in which we live that point to the imminent return of our Lord Jesus. And if that scares you, man, you need to look at Jesus. 
You need to give your life over to Him. Because I'll tell you, as one who has given his life to Jesus, nothing thrills me more than the thought of seeing the wagons on the hill. Than the thought of seeing the clouds parting. And here He comes to rescue us. To get us out of the despair and the doldrums and the hard life. Hey, the Bible doesn't mince words. The life that we live is hard. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Every person in here, mark my words, every one of us will go through tribulations and trials and struggles. Everyone. Some more than others, or so it seems. But life is tough. So we look out at the end of the tunnel. Jesus coming for His bride is the vision we've been given to get us through all the pessimistic clutter of the world. And without that promise, I guarantee you, without that, without being able to look forward to that, that happy day, man, color me pessimistic about the world in which we live. Like Groucho Marx once said, if you're happy these days, you're just not paying attention. If I wasn't a Christian, folks, if I didn't have Jesus coming to look forward to, I would be one of the darkest souls on the face of the planet. I've said before to some of you that philosophically, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be an existentialist who believed that life is absurd, ridiculous. You live for a while, you struggle for a while, you go through pain, and you die. Rick, I thought you were trying to lift us up. I am! Stay with me. <laughs> Jesus said this, Luke 21, 28, Straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That great day when it will dawn bright and we will see the Lord. Your redemption is drawing near. What do you have to be upset about? Well, my life's kind of hard. Yeah, but it's almost over. Praise God, our redemption is drawing near. Okay, Rick, so when are you going to lighten up on all this second coming stuff? Don't hold your breath. Because Jesus' return is the single greatest word of encouragement we have as believers. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, Paul said, Hey, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we above all men are most to be pitied. And in a word of, let me say exhortation rather than judgment, I fear that many churches today are to be pitied because they're so focused on this life. Because it's all about this world. About what believing in Jesus will bring you in this world. Folks, I don't care what it brings me in this world. Good stuff, wonderful. Bad stuff, okay. But I believe in Jesus because of what's coming. Because of the next world. Because like Jacob, life can get hard and dark and despairing. But like Jesus said, lift up your eyes. Your redemption is drawing near. The wagons are coming. Repeat this after me. Jesus is coming soon. Alright, one more time with feeling. Jesus is coming soon. Okay, it's hard to say that and not smile. You guys are all going, Jesus is coming soon. Hey, did you know Jesus is coming? Did you understand that Jesus is coming soon? Nothing is more wonderful to me. My favorite verse in all the Bible. It's the last verse of the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the one. What are we despairing of? Straighten up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. When Jacob saw the wagons, his spirit revived. And you might notice in verse 28 that Israel spoke. Jacob revived. Jacob despaired. But Israel now speaks. 
And he says, it's enough. My son's alive. I'm going to see him before I die. Actually, when Jacob says it's enough in verse 28, that phrase, it's the Hebrew word rob, and what it means is it's more than enough. It's beyond enough. It's overwhelming evidence. Qualitatively, quantitatively, Jacob is talking about abundance. I, I, this, is an amazing, this, is an over, this vision is beyond anything I can imagine. My son is alive. He is coming. Which brings me to the second word. The first is vision. The second is provision. Provision. The wagon trains are coming and it is loaded to the hilt. Look back up at verse 23. Tells us to his father, Joseph sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt. Now, Egypt is at the top of its game, folks. Greatest kingdom in the world at this present time. And these ten donkeys are loaded down with the best of all Egypt in the middle of a famine. Goes on to say, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance, literally meat, for his father on the journey. These wagons aren't coming empty. They're coming full. They're, lo they're lunch wagons. They are packed to the gills, loaded to the hilt. And I love this picture. Because it reminds me that though God has given me a vision for his coming, he has not left me empty handed right now. He gives me provision for the journey. And we desperately need God's provision for this journey, don't we? Because the way is hard. Blaise Pascal once said, A drop of water or a breath of air can kill a man. And the Bible says in Psalm 103.15, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. James 4.14, James writes, You are just a vapor. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. In an attempt to go further in this encouragement, flip in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Over in the New Testament, I'll give you a moment to get there. Paul is talking about his ministry here. And Paul's life was hard. You want to do some comparing about tough things in your life. Look at Paul. He lost everything. He gave up everything. He went through constant torment throughout his life because of Jesus, by the way. You ever heard the phrase that Jesus will ruin your life? It's true. <laughs> he will, wonderfully. And Paul wouldn't have had it any other way. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, down in verse 6, listen to what Paul says. He says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts. Wait a minute now. Light shall shine out of darkness. What's Paul referring to here? He's talking about creation. He's saying the same God who said, Let there be light. And the lights went on. That same God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. He goes on and says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, 
but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or seen in the body. He says, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In the spring of 1947... A Bedouin goat herder searching the glyphs along the Dead Sea for a lost goat ran into some interesting caves. And as he wandered around in these caves, he came upon several clay pots, jars, and he opened them up and they were filled with very old parchment. So he took them home and thinking they've got to be worth something, sold them, and it turns out they were the lost Dead Sea Scrolls. Parchments, over 800 different parchments and fragments of biblical scrolls that dated all the way back to 68 A.D., within the lifetime, just after the lifetime of Christ, during the lifetime of people like Paul and Peter. Very, very old. And amazing because when they began to study and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I encourage you to do sometime, you can go online and find out all kinds of things about Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. What's amazing is as they compared those parchments to modern day translations of Scripture, to modern Greek texts that we actually have that we base our translations on, there were no errors. I mean, it was flawless. It was beautiful. God has sustained His Word as He promised He would. But we have this fantastic truth. Like these clay pots that held this amazing treasure, we are the same. We're clay pots. We're earthen vessels, the Bible calls us. Paul says that we have this treasure inside earthen vessels. Inside these weak, wimpy, not-so-great bodies. The older I get, the more I feel that way. In fact, this Wednesday, pray for me, I'm going to have LASIK surgery. <laughs> so I'm going to be able to see you better. <laughs> and I went in there, and I'm so excited about this. I've been talking to Cheryl about this for 15 years. And I just want to get rid of the glasses and get the eyes fixed and be able to see. And real excited. So we go down there, down to Renton. We go into the doctor's office, and we're looking at all the stuff and talking and, and finding out all about LASIK surgery, and it's wonderful. And then we sit down, and the nurse says, Now, you do understand that you're about to turn 40. And I said, Yes, thank you for reminding me. And she said, Well, the thing is, you need to know this about LASIK surgery. It will correct your distance vision, but you're going to need reading glasses pretty soon. Well, that's great. Thanks so much. Well, I came out of the doctor's office thinking what a great pot I have. And, and I'm thinking about my life and body stuff. And we begin to talk to people. I call up my mom on the phone. Hey, mom, I'm going to have LASIK surgery. And from California, my mom says, well, you know, you're still going to need reading glasses pretty soon. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Put dad on the phone. Hey, dad, I'm getting LASIK. Yeah, I know. I, I, uh, your mom's got that. She still needs reading glasses, though. Yeah, thanks a lot, dad. Every person I told about this surgery said, you're still going to need glasses because you're, like, 40. I said, well, thanks. Nice earthen pot. But listen, hear me on this. There is something amazing inside this earthen vessel, inside this clay jar. Something wonderful, something fantastic. Paul reminds us that this clay jar, that these clay jars all around us here are filled with a super abundant treasure. A lasting, impervious, eternal treasure. The spirit of Jesus himself resides here. So take my eyesight. 
Remove my hearing. Drive my hair back as far as you want. <laughs> Paul goes on in verse 16 of uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Skip down there. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, I love that phrase, yet our inner man, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, eh, they're temporal. But the things that are not seen are, Paul says, eternal. And this gang is the, the secret, the key to spiritual endurance. In Christ, though all of our physical strength, which includes, by the way, mental processes, emotions, your bodies, everything, all of that is withering away, dying out from the day you're born. But for all of that, though it's steadily fading, my soul is getting bigger. My soul is getting bigger. My life is expanding. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The word abundantly isn't just abundantly. It implies overabundance, superabundance, beyond overflowing. Life that is beyond is what we're guaranteed. And my soul is growing to that place. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, listen to this, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Which image is that? It's the image of Jesus Christ. Not that we will ever be anything like Jesus, but we are being transformed into the image that He now bears, an eternal glorified image. Our souls are growing provision. God is providing for us on this journey. The wagons are coming. The wagons are filled. Vision, we see them coming. Provision, they are filled. And folks, it's hard to be pessimistic. When you have that kind of vision and you understand that kind of provision. Now, let me take a parting shot at pessimism. Number three, last one. Number three is precision. And some of you really need to hear this this morning. Maybe more than anything else I've said. Precision. The wagons are coming, but they're coming to right where you are. Now, think about this. Do you realize that if you are in Christ... And if Jesus should just so happen to come on a day when you're despairing, He is still coming. And He's still going to pick you right up and take you home. Some of you in this room right now are going to be shouting at your children when the sky parts. And Jesus says, come up here. And you go, just a minute, I told you about... Oh, okay. Some are going to be hard at work on a project from work. Trying to get it done, stressed out. Man, I don't have time to get it done. And the skies will part. Some are going to be just frustrated with their life. Some are going to be weeping. Jesus said this way, he said, Luke 17, 34, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other will be left. Some are going to be sleeping. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and one will be left. Two men will be in the field. One, field, one will be taken and the other will be left. What are people doing when Jesus comes? Living. Living life. People are going to be asleep. There's really only one place I don't want to be when the Lord comes. I'm not going to talk about it right now. But what are people doing when they're taken? I'll let you think that through. 
They're just plain old living. And my point is this. If you are in Christ, whatever you're doing, you're doing. Now I know it's a corny, hokey song. But I remember the first time when I was a kid that I heard Kumbaya. First time. I know, let's all gather around a campfire, hold hands, and we'll sing it together. But someone's crying, Lord. Come by here. Someone's happy, Lord. Come by here. Someone's praising, Lord. Come by here. Someone's weeping, Lord. Come by here. We're going to be living life. We're going to be in all kinds of places, emotionally, physically, doing all kinds of different things in that moment. And you know what? With precision, God is going to meet us where we are. You mean if I'm not all super spiritual and lifting up my hands in praise in church on a Sunday morning? You mean if I have to be somewhere else on a Sunday morning? (laughs) Like home watching the game? You know what? If you're in Christ and you're home watching the game on Sunday morning, you're going home with Him. Now that's not a free pass this fall, okay? (laughs) But it is! It's the truth! If you are in Christ, when He comes, you go. Period. Precision. Watch this. Back to Genesis 46. It says, Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And I think, wait a minute. Lord, you renamed him Israel. Why are you calling him Jacob? And I submit to you that because Jacob needed to hear God's voice. Because Jacob needed God to call on him. And God said, verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world in the Bible. Do not be afraid when you're down in the world, folks. He goes on and says, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, Jacob. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. God addresses Jacob in the vision. He doesn't address Israel. He addresses Jacob. Why? Because God meets you where you are. Precision. And in that moment of calling, you will hear His voice. No matter how stressed you may be with this life. No matter how pessimistic you may have become, Jacob was at the bottom of the barrel when he saw the wagons coming. And God met him where he was. Jacob, I'll go down to Egypt with you. I will also surely bring you up again. I will be precisely where you are. So folks, this morning the wagon train is a-coming. That's your vision. It is loaded down with encouragement, with the, the treasure in these vessels, these clay pots. That's your provision. And God will meet you where you are. That is your precision. And gang, even in your worst, most cynical, doubtful, sorry moment of pessimism, if you happen to be in that place when Jesus comes, you will go home with Him. Oh. So, if that's true, what you're saying is I can be a pessimist until Jesus comes. Right? Sure. If you want to. Because you're not saving yourself anyway. It's not your attitude that will get you into heaven. It's Christ's blood. It's His grace that saves you. So if you want to spend the rest of your life pessimistic, down in the mouth, 
Go ahead. <laughs> Just don't hang around me, okay? Because I don't need it. I got a flood to deal with at home. Charles Spurgeon said, a little bit of faith, a little bit of faith will get your soul to heaven, but a lot of faith will bring heaven to your soul. So my question for you this morning is, how do you want to live? Do you want to live pessimistic? Christians in the world, I I don't believe we have any reason to be pessimistic. We've got vision, we've got provision, we've got the precision of God coming straight to where we are. How can we possibly be pessimists in this world knowing those things? One final thing, I want to read you a verse and we'll be done. Jude 17. Jude 17. It's the second to the last book in the Bible. I'm going to read some verses and we'll pray together. And I hope these words encourage you today as much as I've been encouraged reading them this week. Jude 17. But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, and listen to this, in the last time there will be mockers. Mockers are a form of pessimists. Following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy without fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Fathers, we have seen, and we see in Jacob's life, it is easy to be pessimistic in this world. Easy to look around at the bad things happening, both worldwide and in our personal lives. Easy, Father, to succumb to the sadness and the sorrow. But Jesus, you have saved us. You have promised us life eternal. And you bring to everyone who believes in you, your spirit to reside in these clay pots. And God, as I think about that, my soul wells up. And beyond all this, that you would love me so much that you would pull me out where I am, wherever I am. God, that blesses my heart today. Lord Jesus, I know there are some here this morning who are in sorrow and who are struggling. And I know, Father, because I've spoken to many just in the last couple of weeks who are facing tough times right now. God, they need a vision. A vision of the return of Jesus. And I pray for them particularly that you will fill them up with the provision of Jesus' Spirit and remind them that you've got your eye on them. God, you are, you are the ultimate sharpshooter and you will pull us out. 
Father, I, I just pray a blessing for my friends and family here this morning that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, then I'm, I'm banking on the fact that life has been pessimistic for you. If you want to be released of that, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I don't want to be in darkness anymore. I want to see you. I want to be lifted up. I want to live with encouragement. I want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I need to repent of the sins of my life and confess to you that I need you. Lord, please forgive me and clean up my soul. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I take you this morning as my Lord and my Savior. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.